I know. I cannot believe it. I'm like, where did the time go? Uh, it's, I mean, it's almost April. It's just, it's crazy. It's really, really crazy. Okay, but to get started, um, Randy has, Randy's going to come open us in prayer this morning. If y'all don't know Randy Butler, and hopefully Steve's going to find us a clip for this mic, or I'm holding it the whole time. I'll keep holding it. Okay. All right. Oh, I need a microphone. Oh, good. All right, let's go. Father, you are so faithful and good in every way. God, that you have kept your word going for us today is such a beautiful picture of that faithfulness to us. God, may your spirit go before today as Nancy is teaching and Jim teaches, God, and as we are the listeners. God, may we be moldable and teachable. God, I am grateful for the teachers that have gone before us many, many years before that we can glean from. God, but most importantly, your spirit that enlightens, God, that shows, that points to God. God, so I pray um, for our ears to hear and there to be a tenderness and when we have questions that we would ask, God, and we would come before you in whatever position we need to be to learn, to understand. God, may you give us the wisdom that we cannot gain on our own. God, it is through your son that we can ask these things, and so we praise you for his glorious name. Amen. Thank you, Randy. I love hearing you all pray. We're going to just keep doing that. That's really fun. Okay. We are in Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. Our last major contrast in the book of Hebrews, the contrast between Mount Zion and Mount Zion. And while I'm thinking about it real quick, Jim is not going to be here today, but he is. He and several others are out, off having fun in Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm a little pea green with envy because that's where my grandbabies are. And um, they're there, and I'm not. don't know how that happened. Anyway, but he did make um, a, a little CD for us to watch. So uh, we'll be anxious. I haven't seen it, so we'll be anxious to see that. Steve will set it up for us at the break. So pull your homework out, and let's get started. This comparison of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And let's look at it. Hang on. i got to get doctored up here. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Okay, what did you learn? Let's just look at the Mount Sinai and Mount um, Zion. Let's just read these first verses. I'm going to read them. You all follow along. Starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hairs beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not even endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what happened at Mount Sinai? I gave you a couple references in Exodus. What happened there between God and the children of Israel? 
And did you put yourself in their shoes of what that was like? That's where the law was given. At what point, do you, do you know at what, what point in history this is? This is when they've just been delivered from Egypt. They've, God has brought them out by his mighty hand through all of the plagues, and um, they, are, they are in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, and it is here that he makes the covenant of the law with them. And so this is the giving of the law, because in one of those passages, if you read the, in chapter um, 20, the first part, what's there? Did you glance back and see what is there? What's there? It's the Ten Commandments, isn't it? This is where he gave, gave the Ten Commandments. Can somebody on that side of the room jump up and go close that door so we don't hear the little, the little people? They're wonderful, but not that wonderful. <laughs> not right now they are. <laughs> They're not. So what happened there? God gives the law, and what did he tell them? Go ahead. They are not to go near the mountain. If they come near it, if they even touch it, they will be killed. Even if an animal, just an innocent animal, happened to stray too close, it, it would be killed. It was a frightening sight, wasn't it? Now, how many of you all were in Stillwater when that really big earthquake happened last fall? How did that make you feel? What, Scott? It was quite a deal. You thought it was a tornado that had hit? Were you already awake or did it wake you up? Yeah, we, we were out cold. That was a rude awakening. Do what? It knocked a pitcher off of your wall, okay? Yeah, what thoughts went through your head? Wow. Was anybody scared? A little bit scared? I remember the very first really loud earthquake we had a couple of years ago. I was watching TV. And in and, and our house, they, they're not so much that you feel them, but you hear them. And, and those of you old enough to know what a sonic boom is, uh, with no warning, and it, it just, I mean, my, I mean, my heart just kind of stopped and went in my mouth. It scared me to death. What in the world was that? It really scared me. Now it's just like, oh, it's an earthquake. Yeah, any other thoughts? Okay, imagine that kind of times 10. And what else? You're not only hearing and feeling this earthquake, what were they seeing as they are down at the base of this mountain? Smoke? A th yes, and a thick cloud? A trumpet sound? What else are they hearing? And what does it sound like to them? Scared them to death. It sounds like thunder, and it was so frightening. They said, we don't, Moses, you go. We don't want to, we don't, we're going to step back. We don't want to hear any more of this. So you can imagine if, if, the, if an earthquake is just an inkling of what they experience, then we get a sense of the fear that they had witnessing what is happening here. So let's, let's just break apart the differences between Sinai and Zion from the text. What does it say? And draw some conclusions from it. What are some of the things you saw? 
between these two mountains. What do you have on your list there on question four? Throw them out to me and let's put them up here. A blazing fire. Yeah, darkness and gloom. That makes me think, um, when Scott said we thought it was a tornado, I, I, I also remember a couple years ago when it looked like one was going to touch down right around campus. You could just see it. And Vance and I, were, of course, we stand outside and watch them. But um, we knew it was moving away from us. But it was very obvious at any moment that with the, the circulation of that black cloud and how dark it was and kind of quiet, it could touch down and have done tremendous damage. Now, praise God, it didn't. But, but there's a sense of helplessness of just watching that and knowing people are in the path and no control over what's going to happen. Okay, other things. Okay, shaking. There's that sense of the earthquake. What'd you say? The law was given. Okay. when the law was given in the Ten Commandments. Oh, terrifying. There's the thunder, the trumpet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, God's voice. They heard a voice which frightened them. The hearers, they didn't even want to hear anymore. I don't want to hear anymore of God's voice. Other things. Okay, it's earthly. I'm going to put next to that, it's physical. Because this was a physical mountain. It's actually there, they could see it. If they could have gotten close, they could have touched it. Other things. Okay, this, all of this is a picture of the Old Covenant. Okay, and what do we know about the Old Covenant? What is one of the primary things we've learned in here about the Old Covenant? What are some of those things we learned that are pictured in this? It's physical, it's also, in being physical, it's also what? It's temporary. It's external, it's not internal, it's external. Other things. I, don't, I, I doubt it. I don't know that they did. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I mean, even though they were um, definitely Definitely prophecies and allusions to the coming of Christ, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. How much they understood of that. Remember what we learned, Diane, in, in theology classes about progressive revelation. They know so much of what God has revealed, and then he progressively reveals more and more and more. And it's only then that in hindsight you can go back and say, yes, that was there. That was there all along. So I'm not sure that they understood it was temporary. On this side of the historical marker, we can look back and say this was all very temporary, okay? Other thoughts? 
it was it was a fearful it was a fearful thing to see and to hear okay oh wonderful wonderful unapproachable the emphasis was really on the in that unapproachable the emphasis was on the distance do y'all see that between God and man there's a distance between them because God's holiness is so great and man's sinfulness is so complete there had to have been a distance between them other observations any other thing death yeah yeah if you touch it you come too close there will be death there will absolutely be death yes Karen I'm thinking they are Jewish people but they're not really they're really not even Israel yet if we think about it they're just no it's a good thought I'm just thinking it through what will you these are but they but they are yeah they have they are card Jews aren't they this is the beginning of the nation really when they come out is really when they're going to be established as a nation of Israel am I correct yeah. Are you thinking that not only is this an inauguration of the law, but if this is kind of the beginning of them as a nation? Okay. Okay. I like that. No, no, I don't think it's a stretch because if we look at it in, in, in the, as, as history and what's going on at this historical moment, I don't think that's a stretch. Yes. Okay, okay. They were slaves to sin. You know, we could, I don't think it'd be a stretch to take everything we've learned in Hebrews and put it up here at this point. What have we learned throughout the book of Hebrews in the um, contrast between the old and the new covenant? We've already said some of those things. There's a distance. You know, we saw that in the temple. A distance only the priests could go into the holy place only the high priest into the holy of holies the people were dependent on the high priest to make these sacrifices that this was a time this is the inauguration of the law but it's a time when yeah they are still slaves to sin what have we learned in Hebrews they never had a clear conscience from their sin they only had atonement a covering of it they had animal sacrifices that they had to offer day after day year after year and yet never had complete forgiveness of sin. So lots of blood spelled, lots of blood of innocent, involuntary animals to cover their sin, and yet never complete forgiveness. These are all truths we've already learned. Do you all remember? Right? Okay. Other thoughts, observations? Judgment. Judgment. Excellent, Bill. 
definitely judgment if I go near and touch it and he zaps me dead. There is judgment of my sin that I cannot come into the presence of his holiness. I'm thinking of a couple more things. Is anybody seeing it? Yes. Yeah, they beg, please don't say any more. Yeah. And why would that be? Why? It's, a, it's fearful. It's terrifying. He, God speaks, and it's, uh, Moses, you go. I don't want to hear any more. This is too frightening for me. Why is it frightening? I like that. Okay, you said the key there, the reality of who God is. This just popped in my head. Isaiah 6. Everybody's familiar with Isaiah 6. What happened in Isaiah 6? Do we need to go there and read it? Let's just go there and read it. In Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. Does that sound familiar? And the house was filled with smoke. Again, familiar? And I said, listen to what he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs with the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So Isaiah had an encounter with God. And what was the his encounter with God's what? what? What aspect of who he is? What reality of who he is did he encounter? That he said, woe is me. His holiness. Yes, a reality of who he is. He is holy. That's what they were coming. That's, that's the encounter they were having here. At Mount Sinai, here is God in all of his holiness, his righteousness, his glory. They were also having just an outpouring of, of the majesty. Now, it was a frightening thing, but the majesty of his glory, it was a frightening thing for Isaiah to see. What Isaiah sees his glory there in, in heaven, in the presence of God, yet it was very frightening his holiness was frightening. It was frightening to him. It was frightening to these people because of our sin. Because God is also righteous and he must judge sin. 
is not something he can tolerate at all. Do you all see this? Okay. I would say yes, and I would say limited relationship. Can we say that instead of no relationship? Let's say limited. They do have relationship because he clearly says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he tells them they will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a light to all the other nations. And that is their purpose in going in to the land of Canaan. They're going to drive out the inhabitants, but part of driving them out is to set them up and establish them as that light to all the other nations. Um, they were never meant to be an island in and of themselves. They were meant to be, as we are, a light in the dark world drawing men to God. That's why Gentiles were always included. There was always Gentile people in the mix, and they were never excluded. They had to um, honor God and worship him and basically become Jewish in their practice. There were always God-fearers in the mix. We know that. We had Ruth. We had Rahab. We have a whole host of different people. So their, but their relationship wasn't as intimate as what we have because they couldn't come near to him. But there was relationship. So I'd say limited relationship. Okay? Other thoughts? Any other thoughts? Okay. What about Mount Zion? And move Mount Zion over. We kind of bled into Mount Zion, didn't we? What about Mount Zion, the place that we have come? Which this is important. We have not come here. But we have come. Okay, and I'll make another comment about that in a minute. But what do you learn about Mount Zion? The place where we have come. Okay, city of the living God. What else does the text tell us? It's the heavenly Jerusalem, not earthly. Who's there? Okay, countless, innumerable. I can't spell innumerable, so we'll say countless angels. Countless angels in a festal gathering. Do you know what that means? They're having a party. They're basically having a party. Festival gathering. It's a party. Yeah. A little bit different than over here. What else? Who else is there? An assembly of whom? Okay. An assembly. What? The enrollees. Oh, I've, I forgot all about that old song. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. I love, that's what I love about some of those old songs. You just got to know them. So who, who are the firstborn? 
The chosen, who else? Who are the firstborn? The what? The church? Who's included? Us. It's, it's us. Now, in, in biblical times, what was special about being firstborn? You what, Alex? You got the inheritance. The eldest son got everything the father had. Very unfair, but that's just the way it, it worked. It's the way it was. Um, so what is he saying? Do you all get the implication of this? We are firstborn. Here's an assembly of firstborns. What are not there? That's a trick question. Do what? No second, no third, no fourth, no fifth, no sixth. Everybody, I love this picture, everybody is an eldest son or an eldest daughter. That makes you special. Do you know it? It makes you very, very special. I don't know in America if we quite get that. I remember, I can't remember what study we were doing, and I heard, I heard someone, a pastor speak, I don't remember who it was, but talk about, he had talked about what it meant to be a firstborn. And someone who'd been born in another country, a woman came up just weeping. And that meant so much to her because in her culture, number one, men had more inheritance rights than women. And the firstborn had even greater inheritance right. And she had such a frame of reference from her culture of what that meant, that in God's eyes, I am a firstborn who inherits all everything that the Father has to give. I think we have to sit on that one a little bit and meditate on it for it to move us the way it will move the people that originally heard this or people that come from those countries that are different in their culture concerning inheritance. Does that make sense? Okay. Other things. Assembly of the firstborns. All the eldest are there. Who else is there? Okay. And he's what? He's the judge of all. Who else is there? Oh, there's somebody in between. Jesus is there. Okay. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. And we know from chapter 11... All those people that live by faith are there, along with millions of others that have gone before us that are firstborn of the assembly, the enrollees, the spirits of the righteous. And yes, God is there, judge of all, and Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Um, the one who has, who sprinkled, who has blood that speaks a better word. Okay, what else? We've done the obvious you all did a great job picking out the less obvious in here, the fact that it was unapproachable, that it was external. Pull those same truths out on this side of the equation. Okay, very approachable. Say that again, Diane. Okay, okay. Awe, not fear. Okay, great. Cannot be shaken. 
Okay. Right, cannot be shaken. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I had that written in my notes, that song. Yes, somebody over here said something. Okay, it sounds peaceful. Yeah, compared to that, definitely. Yes. Okay, let me, let me say something about this. The we have come is in the perfect tense, which means you've already, you're already there. We already have come. I mean, it's, ten, it's, it's our tendency to look at this and say, well, that's all future. And it is future. But it's also now. It's that what, what we talk about in here all the time, and I love how Jim phrases, it's the already, not yet. So we already have this. We are already a firstborn. We are already citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. We're just waiting for the full fruition of it. But that's... That's what we already have. This is what we have, what we have now and what we have to look forward to all wrapped together in one package. Okay? And could, here's one. How confident could they be to come near this? Can't. What, what about this? What have we heard throughout Hebrews? Yes. Approach. Thank you, Becky. Approach with confidence we can boldly draw go into the throne room of grace we can draw near whereas over here you could not draw near to do so meant judgment and death here is to be embraced and welcomed okay God, here's another one. God spoke here, didn't he? No question about it. Did he speak here? What did we learn in Hebrews 1.1? 1, 1? Do you remember all the way back? Yeah. God spoke. God spoke in his son. So you see that theme of him speaking in both of those, definitely. Other thoughts? Can you see, when you think about the recipients of this letter and what they're experiencing, can you see hearing what these truths would mean to them? How would this encourage them? Let's go to the warning before we answer that. Right after this is the warning. See to, this, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Okay, the warning has a warning. There's also a promise in that warning. What is the warning? What is the promise? The warning is there's certain, you cannot, you cannot hear God and ignore that voice without there being some impunity attached to it. The promise is, and you all already brought it out in here, 
is that I shook, I shook back here. This shook the earth when this happened. But you know what? Someday I'm going to shake it in a much stronger force than you have ever known before. And that which cannot be shaken will remain. And what remains? This all remains, but he says something in one of those verses about what remains. What remains in verse 28? Hmm? The heavens, yes, the heavens will remain. And I heard something else over here. His kingdom. And we are citizens of that kingdom. That kingdom is, is again, that already, not yet. We are part of it already, and yet the full fulfillment of it is not yet. But we are a part of that kingdom, definitely. Other thoughts? Yes. It was the completion of God's plan. Yes. Okay, here's a question. We've kind of talked about it a little bit. And I'm on number five in your homework. What did you learn about God? What do you learn about him? We've already seen he is holy. That didn't work. He's holy. He's jealous. Is that in a negative way? No. What, what is God's jealousy? Our jealousy is you have something I want. What is his jealousy? Right, right. He is our God. We are his people. He wants us for himself. It is a holy love and it's for our, our best good. Isn't it? Yes. Other things you learned about God? Okay. He's still a judge. He will still judge. He judged. He will judge. He's what? His grace. Compassion. Faithful. What? Never changing. Hang on to that word. Somebody said something over here. Yeah, there is no. That's part of the judgment. No escape for those who reject him. Mm-hmm. Other things you learned this week or you saw revealed about who God is. Okay. He has, oh, that's good. He has a plan. I've got faithful. Okay. I'm just going to say loving. Okay. Oh, my, my, my. All powerful. I'm going to say omnipotent. Yeah, it is easier to spell. I can spell that one. Other things? You see that all powerful and that just by speaking, just his voice alone can elicit so much fear and so much quaking of the earth and, and different things. Anything else? 
pretty much it does ensure that. But if you reject that, the consumer's power is a different issue. Right, right. He is a powerful friend, but a frightening foe. Would you say that? You want to be consumed in a good way. Because when it says God is a consuming fire, I gave you a couple of verses that went along with that. Did you look them up and what the context were? What was the context of those verses? Well, one, in Deuteronomy 4, it's talking about don't, don't make a carved image. It's exactly what you were saying in, um, previously. For the God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He wants us for himself. But in 9.3, that's in the context of he's saying you're, he's getting ready to send them out to dispossess the nations in the land that they're going into. And they're going to come up against nations that are greater and mightier than they are. But he says, know therefore today that he that goes over before you is a consuming, as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you will drive them out and make them perish quickly. That, that is a picture of the consuming fire being judgment. Because him taking Israel, if you know anything about Joshua, uh, Joshua, his taking them into the land was to also bring judgment on the wickedness of the Canaanites that were living there. It was God, they were God's instrument of judgment. Okay, Other things about God that you see. Anything else? What does it tell you? He is approachable. Why is he approachable? It is because of Jesus. But can I just say he's approachable because he has provided the way for us to approach him? Has he not? It is through the blood of Jesus. Think back to Romans. Let's just go there. Go to Romans 3. Those of you all that did Romans a couple of years ago will remember this. Do you remember in Romans 1 what was poured out upon all the unrighteous? God's wrath is poured out upon all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And uh, Paul spends quite a bit of time not only condemning the Gentile, but even the Jew, and telling the Jew, all of your observance of the law, number one, you can't observe all of it completely. It only condemns you. And then he, in this great crescendo in chapter 3, talks about how, starting in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. I mean, he just paints this picture of our, of our depravity. For by the word, in 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Note these two words, but now... I would circle them, underline them, do whatever it is you do in your Bible. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he spends three chapters telling them, you, the law will not justify you. Any work you do will not justify you. There's no way by your own effort you can. You are condemned by your sin to death, and you are worthy of nothing but death. But because I love you so much, I will satisfy my own wrath by providing the propitiation, I can't say it, propitiation in the blood of Jesus Christ. And those of y'all that were in Romans, you will remember this. This is the best example, uh, best quote by John Stott. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. If that isn't his love and his righteousness and his holiness and him as judge, all working together, all facets of his character working together, his compassion, his mercy, all of those things that we want to attribute to him, or don't want to attribute to him, coming together to make a way for us so that it is approachable through Jesus. He did that. It's his gift of grace. So in that, we see he is full of grace. Is he not? Full of grace. But I see something else. I don't know if you all noticed this. When I kept saying, who was there? Who was there? Countless angels, assembly of the firstborn, spirits of the righteousness, of the righteous ones. What does that tell you about God? And in festival gathering. Do what? What'd you say? He knows. <laughs> I love that. He, I love what Lynn said. He knows how to throw a party. I think, I think it is, I, I want to be around those whom I created. Does he not? I really, I don't need your company, but I really like your company. I really like it, and I enjoy being with you. I think that's what this shows. He really enjoys that, and in a good time. If you look at Jesus, he, had, he went to parties and weddings and celebrated and had a good time. Nothing wrong with that. He enjoys us and being with us. Okay, now that brings us to this question right after that. Did you notice that? Have you ever believed, heard or believed for yourself that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different? Is anybody... Ever believe that or heard that? You hear it a lot? Okay. I've heard it sitting in a Sunday school class about eight, year, eight nine years ago. Someone um, at this church, a gentleman, said, um, raised in the church, been going to church all his life, threw out the question, when did God change? And somebody said, what do you mean, when did he change? 
Well, you know, he was so wrathful and vengeful and seems like he was out to get everybody in the Old Testament, so quick to just move in and command that every, everybody be wiped out. And now he's just loving and kind and compassionate. When did he change? Why did he change? And, of course, those of us that are familiar with the Old Testament were just blurting out. Do you remember that, Lynn? Were you there? You were in there. And, and we were both, we were just like, no, he hadn't changed at all. You just don't understand. You haven't studied the Old Testament. He, has he changed? Okay, he is the same. Why? Why is he the same? How did, he looks kind of different here, doesn't he? Is he different? How would you answer that question? There are people, there are people, there are sincere believing followers of Christ, and there may be one in here, I don't know, that looks at this and says God changed. Okay, so Tani says everything that he did in both situations is because he loved us so. So love and love. Yes. Right. Did you all hear her? Is Jesus' work that I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember exactly what you said. That's how quickly I lose it. It was Jesus' work that made the way. And who sent Jesus? God the Father. Didn't he? Yes. Other thoughts? How do you tell someone that? Um, B.B. says the Israelites were rebellious, and God was trying to teach them how to live. Are we rebellious? Yeah, we really are. But we have the blood of Christ. Yes, we're under a new covenant, a better covenant, a better blood, a better sacrifice. Okay, other thoughts? Yes. Right. Yes, it's not external. Under the old, it was written on tablets of stone. Under the new, it's written on our hearts. Exactly. Okay. No, they couldn't. And so it was almost like, you know, kind of They had the law revealed sin. Paul tells us that. I had I had I not had the law, I wouldn't have understood I wouldn't have known what sin was. I wouldn't have known what coveting is. And without the law they wouldn't have understood I can't do it and I need a savior. The law prepared them for a savior. Yes. I love that. God didn't change. It's us coming to recognize that we, not even that we need to change, that, that, that we need something that only he can give us. And the change. Yeah, we kind of do. Yeah. 
Has, has anybody in here, some of the people that did theology classes, do you remember a guy by the name of Marcion? You remember, does that name sound familiar? Marcion was a second century teacher that had problem with this God and this God. And so he just took, he just said the Old Testament and the New were incongruent. They were incompatible. So he basically cut out everything, pretty much most of the Old Testament. Anything with references to God as, as judging and, and where the holiness really gets displayed or the, or he would certainly cut out Joshua where he commands them to go in and to totally wipe out civilizations and created his own Bible. Well, he was condemned as a heretic, obviously. But if you think about it, if you really think about it, there's still lots of little Marcionites walking around. Because what do you hear? What do you hear out there in the world in which you live or where you read? God loves us and we're okay. rejected the propitiating atonement of Jesus, the substitutionary right. atonement of Jesus right. Christ? They, yes. They got that thinking of, well, Christ, you know, the loving God would not punish people. They would not send them to hell and all of that. They've gone back to that. Thinking. They've gone, it's yeah. very prominent. Have you heard the expression divine child abuse? They do, they see the death of Jesus as divine child abuse. Uh, that's the direction that um, Rob Bell went. Can't think of others. And in fact, I think the latest podcast is on that subject. I think I saw somebody post something on Facebook. Is it? I think it is on this very subject. And it's because they have a hard time. They want to see God as loving and compassionate and full of grace and mercy, but cannot reconcile it with his holiness and his righteousness. They're having a, they, they can't seem to put those pieces together, so we're just going to reject this completely. But let me read you a quote about this. I wish I could take credit for it. It's really wonderful, but I can't. It was by R. Kent Hughes. He's a commentator about Mount Sinai. He said, to understand that God is holy and that one is a sinner is to stand at the threshold of grace. Do you want me to repeat that? To understand that God is holy and that one is a sinner is to stand at the threshold of grace. Think about that. Isn't that true? Yeah, it's when I see his holiness. What did, what did Isaiah, Isaiah saw? The word grace is not used in his encounter, but it's all over it. It's bleeding out of the words because he should have been struck dead in the presence of God, and yet he sees God's grace, and that he sends the seraphim over to touch his lips with the burning coal to purify him so he can, so he can continue in the conversation with God. It's an outpouring of God's grace that he makes provision for us if we accept him, if we believe by faith. Did y'all see that? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
I, I know some of you on the other side of the room can't hear her, and I can't repeat everything you said, but one thing you said that was so beautiful is, and I, help me here, something about God. We, we have to know him as an all-powerful God, not just as an all-loving God, right? We don't really understand who he is and what he's provided for us. I don't think until you, you do not, I've always said, you really don't get what Jesus has done for you until you get the Old Testament. Have, have some of you had a light bulb moment with that in the study of Hebrews? Has that opened that window for you of understanding of what it means that he died on the cross for you and was the once for all blood sacrifice? And, and the one who is the mediator of the new covenant, that he is a merciful, faithful high priest that has sat down at the right hand of God and we can go boldly into the throne room of grace. Those things take on a new meaning when you lay him up right next to how it used to be but God hadn't changed he's still every you don't have Jesus and you approach him this whoa there it is he has not changed the difference is is the blood allows us that confidence in uh, ability to go confidently in and draw near to him because we've been made righteous by the blood we stand justified before him Another thing I read I thought was really good, summed it up so well, when I say there's lots of Marcy and I still running around, is um, this quote. It says, we have sentimentalized the idea of God, one who amounts to little more than a deity who died to meet their needs. Sin is minimized. People know Jesus, but they don't know God. Then you don't really know Jesus. Because what did we learn in the very first verses? Jesus is God. He is the God-man. Thoughts, comments? To understand, I'll repeat it, to understand that God is holy and that one is a sinner is to stand at the threshold of grace. I love that quote. And it's still his demand. I am the Lord, your God, and you will have no other God before me. That hasn't changed. But this talks about his holiness, and then Yes. Yes. And this thought just popped in my mind. For somebody who wants to say that God has somehow changed or different, I don't think he is. You just don't understand. One, is, you know, if I ask you, is he any different? Is he less loving? Is he less compassionate? One, no. If you study the Old Testament, you know 
Yes, he, he commanded the Israelites to go in and wipe out those nations, but how long had he been warning them? Yes, he brought judgment upon Israel and upon Judah with invading armies, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But how many people, how many prophets had he sent to warn them? How many years did he let go by warning after warning, turn, repent, turn, repent? You've broken the covenant. Turn, repent. If you don't turn and you don't repent, this is the judgment that's coming, the judgment I said would come clear back when we made this covenant. And then I, you see his long-suffering, you see his mercy, you see this pleading, Father, please turn and repent. Please turn and repent. It's, 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 it's all of this, all over the pages of the Old Testament. You're just not reading it right or not acquainted with it to, to see that about him, how long-suffering he was before he executed judgment. He is still long-suffering, isn't he? He's not, he hadn't come back yet. Jesus hadn't stood up yet. He's still sitting long-suffering, love, turn and repent today. What does Hebrews say? Today, if you hear his voice, today, because it's still today. He's still calling. He's still calling out to us. And anyone that would say, well, this was a wrathful judging God, that I don't see that in the New Testament. What are they missing? Are y'all following me? How do you see it in the New on the cross, you see it on the cross that he is giving himself, his son, to bear all the weight of our sin, that, he, that we might have full relationship with him and have all the benefits that we, the already but not yet. There's his holiness. There's his righteousness. There's his judgment. It is Jesus himself. To fail to see that is just not understanding. Y'all get that? Therefore, let us what? The final exhortations in this, le- in this chapter. Therefore, let us what? Be grateful that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us what else? How? With reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. When, yes, he is, he is our Abba Father. Yes, Jesus is our friend, but he is a holy, righteous God that deserve, who deserves our reverence and our awe and a healthy, it's not a fear, a terrifying fear, but a reverent fear when we come into his presence. Okay. Any questions we didn't cover that you all want to go over? Any questions you have to ask? Any thoughts as we close? Yes, Keith. No, I think that is a prophecy of what is to be fulfilled in the future. It is actually a direct quote from Haggai 2.6, but obviously the Hebrews author is taking it. In, uh, if you go back into Haggai, it was a shaking that was... Um, prophecy of what was to happen in the future, but then this author is taking it and saying even further into the future, there is going to be, it's, it's, it's when, it's, write these verses down, it's, um, let me see if I can find them, where did I write them? 
Isaiah 13, 13, 2 Peter 3, 10. What does Revelation 21 say? There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, 2 Peter, we'll just go to that one. 2 Peter 3, 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's a shaking that will come where everything, there's a lot of other verses, but that's a whole other study, where this present, have, this present earth will be destroyed. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, not barred by sin, where we will live and dwell forever and reign with him. So I think that's what he's referring to, Keith. Good question. The ones that I wrote down, I also wrote down Psalm 102.25. I think that's what Tammy read earlier. Isaiah 13.13, 13, 2 Peter 3.10, Revelation 21.1. 1. You can go look at those on your own and see if you can find others. Okay, other questions, comments? Okay, we'll take a break then. And Real quick, I have one other thing I meant to share with you. The, um, Steve's going to start this in just a second, and it's going to be those two screens there. So if you're way back over here and you want to move a little closer, you can see a little better. But I was just having a, a conversation over here with, with Linda, and it prompted me to um, something I'd written in my notes about, about these two mountains and the struggle that we have with that is that, and I love this, it says when we... When we come to worship, we come with both of these in view. Now think about that a minute. You come with both of those in view, the, unappro the approachable Zion with its consuming love and the unapproachable Sinai with its consuming fire, and then you come with reverent boldness. Are you all following me? You can't, these are, pardon me? Uh, I can't remember who said it. It's, I take lots of notes. No, no, it was somebody I listened to, somebody I read. It's easy to focus on, the, on one mountain at the expense of the other. Do you know what I mean? It's easy to focus on this and feel condemned all the time. It's easy to focus on that and have no respect for God's holiness or the, the fact that you have sin and really need him. The key is to have theological balance. Our God is both approachable and unapproachable. Are you all with me? He is both approachable and unapproachable. So when we come to worship him, it's not this or this. It's both because he hasn't changed. Think, think on that one. Okay, we're ready, Steve. And thank you, Steve, for being here. Good morning, here. and uh, we really do wish I could be with you right now. I am uh, uh, somewhere between getting ready and kind of getting ready to head to the airport in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, Andrea and I, along with some friends, have had the opportunity to be at a fundraiser, uh, fundraising events uh, over this past weekend uh, for One World Health, an organization that we have been partnering with doing ministry in both Uganda and Nicaragua. I personally have been gone, have gone to uh, Nicaragua once. I look forward to hopefully going back next January. Uh, just an incredible ministry of the church, uh, partnering alongside, like us as a church, um, using our people and partnering alongside churches in Nicaragua and providing health 
uh, to the, the people of their community and using that as, a, as an outreach tool for them. Um, so anyway, that's, that's One World Health, and uh, uh, Andrew and I have had a chance to not just um, attend all of these different events, but even to get away, and Charleston's an amazing place. I've been there before, some great food. It's funny, talk to someone about Charleston and they'll say this, great food. That's usually the number one response I get, and it's, it's actually some of the best restaurants I've ever eaten at are in Charleston. So anyway, um, get, got into the studio this week because uh, and I appreciate Steve's time and willing to do this um, on, on Friday with me. We are um, uh, we're doing this really because I, I want to be the one to speak about this topic that we have. Uh, finishing out chapter 12, last week when I was with you, we spent a lot of time um, considering who Jesus Christ is and, and weighing what he has done for us so that when we look at the difficulties that are happening in our life, when we look at the problems that are happening in our life, we can actually weigh them out and say, but boy, the reward down the, the, that we're going to receive down the, down, the, down, the, down the road, yeah, the reward down the road, that's what I meant to say, the reward down the road is going to be worth us enduring. So let's hold on tight, guys. That's what, that's what we're actually talking about or what we talked about on Tuesday. But now in the back half of this, um, we're going to be talking more about an, another reason for us to endure. And um, it, it's one of those issues that kind of reminded me, kind of drawing us back to Exodus chapter 20. When I talk about Exodus chapter 20, um, I primarily think about the Ten Commandments, and it's in those Ten Commandments that I like to reflect on. Wow, these are the um, no other gods before me, and don't use my name in vain, and do not murder and commit adultery, and these become major pictures of who God is, and, and you know we should listen to Him. But it was actually in this class a number of weeks ago that I was looking through Exodus 20 and looking at some pictures of who God is that I found one of my new favorite ones beginning in verse 18. We'll get there in a second. Exodus 20, verse 18. But it reminded me that when you and I have an opportunity to talk about who God is, we all have different pictures that we have of God that, um, that motivate us and that excite us. And so I'm going to ask you, like, when you think about God, what pictures of God do you like to think about? In, in Hebrews 12, it describes God as a disciplining father. Now, I, I could talk about that, and I could talk about a father who disciplines, and Boy, if I do that too long in any audience nowadays, what way I actually could get easily and I'd almost expect actually is someone to come along and say, yeah, but what about those people that didn't have a good example of a father? Like how do we communicate it to them? And there really becomes this tendency for us to become so sensitive to those people that had a difficult circumstance with their fathers that maybe we need to find another metaphor or another analogy to use to explain who God is because Oh, that one's, that, one's, that one's too difficult for them. Um, I had a father, uh, have a father, at least that I know of. I have a father. Um, and as I think about my dad, really grateful for who he is, um, and I mean this with the greatest of respect, and I would say this to his face, but he actually did fail me. And before you think, wow, Jim, um, I can't believe you just said that. I thought you loved your dad. I do love my dad. And I would say this, man, I, I really tried a lot as, as a father myself to be a great father. And the truth is, um, I failed. I failed my kids many times. Failed them. Now, you might look at that and you might say, but I, I really do. I think you're being way too harsh. I mean, there are some really, really bad dads. I, I agree. But I don't really compare my dad or me to all the bad dads. I want to compare myself to the ultimate father, to the picture of who God is. And I remember kind of, in, in essence, kind of waking up 
and realizing those times in which my father's fathering um, left a gap between how God would have done it. So when I say my dad failed or was a failure, what I mean is there were instances in which my dad did not truly act like the perfect father. He failed. Um, there are instances in my own life in which I did not act like a perfect father. I failed. And so my kids, even though their picture of a father may be better than like bad pictures of fathers, every, <laughs> every one of us, no matter how good our dads are, if we just look at our fathers as the picture or as the example of who God is, at whatever level, it's a failure. 99% is failure. We need God to help us with that one. And so when you look at these pictures of God, what I would challenge you to see is that the picture of God, the pictures of God that are described in the Bible are, um, are intended for, um, to be used for a reason. Two things I want to talk about. First one is this, is are they true? Like so often in our, in our, in our culture, um, we, we really look at it from a, a human perspective. You know, saying that stuff, Jim, about God being a father, oh, that's going to be really hard for certain people to hear. And we really need to be looking at it from their perspective. I, I, I hear you. I, I totally get it. I'm actually in many ways tempted to really think about my people above all else. And it's at those moments when as a preacher and as a leader, I'm failing them. Because the Bible doesn't ask us to consider the world from a human perspective. It asks us to consider the world from a God perspective. And, and by the way, short little sermon, only when I consider all things from God's perspective am I truly able to help and love people. That's the end of the sermon. Um, so when you look at this picture, I, I want to ask you, but, but is it real that God is a father who disciplines his sons? And, and does it for their benefit, even though it might be difficult for a while. I just want to know, is that, is that true? I know it's hard for some of us to hear it, and it's easier for others to hear it. I just want to know, is it true? And Hebrews 12 seemed to say, like, yeah, it's true. That's accurate. That's, a, that's, a, that's an accurate picture of who God is. So number one, um, I, I think it's good for us to realize that God's ontology, God's being, does not alter to fit the circumstances of each of us. No. By the way, there are other religions that may have something like that for you, but that's not the Christian religion. The Christian religion is God is who He is, unchanging. Now, the second question is, and this is where it gets a little more interesting and complicated, is that when you begin to look at um, the, 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 the pictures of God that may be difficult for us to um, to stomach or to realize that God is a disciplining father and that God is an all-consuming fire. Wow, but Jim, here, here's my thing. I've been thinking about that phrase and about that analogy, and, and there are some people who've really been burned by fire, literally, like been burned. And man, when you talk about God as a consuming fire, that really is kind of insensitive to the burns that they have gone through. So why don't we find something different than that? If you think about it, just think for a moment. No matter what analogy we choose, somebody's going to be bothered by it. We all have pains and difficulties that, that go far beyond us. It's why I think it's good for us to realize that God is a father, but in a better way, and even in a different way than my dad is my father, or I am to my sons. So these analogies are, are, are not designed with people in mind, but to try to represent who God is. That's why God reveals Himself, revelation. God reveals Himself. 
and then we kind of come alongside of that. But the second question that I would ask on this issue is, is it really beneficial for us to only find pictures of God that are endearing um, and engaging in a way that provide, we would, we would call it this way, in our pain's comfort? Um, everybody's trying to do this, um, and, and, and we are probably at breakneck speed trying to become increasingly sensitive to all sensitivities, and I, I think it's, I wonder if it's one of the reasons why um, anxiety and concerns and fears are on the rise. The more that we make God like us, sympathizing with us, the more we wonder, is anybody in control of this? Let me give you some examples. So we love to think about Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done. And, and Jesus Christ truly understands us. He became like us in all ways. Isn't that wonderful that He did that? And so I really get Jesus. God the Father, yes, don't, don't quite understand Him, but man, Jesus I totally get. And He sympathizes with me in my weaknesses. By the way, that's in Hebrews. But He doesn't sympathize me in ways like He knows what it's like to sin. So would it be better if you and I began to talk about a, you know, the Bible is so, you know, it's tied into its culture. And so its picture of Jesus is, is one um, in where he didn't sin. But you know what? Now we're understanding the value of total unification in terms of suffering and difficulties. And therefore, I, I think Jesus really did sin. I think it's a, the metaphor that he didn't sin is, uh, and I really think he did sin. Now all of a sudden, wouldn't that Jesus be better? Now, before you're just offended by the statement, I want you to think through it. No. Because of what the Bible describes of the reality of who He is, an all-consuming fire, holy and righteous, Jesus um, sinning like us does not actually make Him more endearing, but makes Him more vulnerable. It makes Him more weak. It makes Him incapable of rescuing us in our moment of greatest need, standing before a holy God. So although we want Jesus in many ways to sympathize with us, Jesus isn't saying, you know, I'm doing that so that you'll get me. That's really not why he did it. Jesus, in a basis of reality, needed to become like us to redeem us. He incarnated that which he redeemed. And so therefore, I, I want you to just think about the importance of some of the pictures that we are actually going to see about God. Now, let me give you a real practical couple of quick things that are happening and, and maybe even point you in a direction that you may enjoy. So recently in our podcast, um, consider this. Uh, we, we have gone over two questions recently. One of them is, um, so what do we think of the movie The Shack? Which is a movie designed to describe the fullness of, of, of the Trinity, of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in a way that is far more sympathetic and understanding. God is... Um, God's kind of like this really kind and gracious cook that'll make you biscuits and bread like you can't imagine and is always sweet and kind and is willing to put up with your temper tantrum and, um, and he, she is always there for you. And, and by the way, um, there were actually parts of the movie that I loved, but I'm beginning to realize the reason why I loved the movie for what it was was because I knew where it failed in, pack, in, in capturing the fuller picture of who God is. So I was able to go, oh, okay, listen. Yeah, it got that wrong, it got that wrong. and it got, I mean, it was a human movie, so it got a lot of things wrong. But it got these things right, and that was actually kind of cool. 
that actually lined up with scripture here and that actually helped me understand now the scripture is what I'm really using but the, the, the movie comes alongside and the picture shines the light on and yeah that actually kind of helps me out a bit like that's the way it needs to be but the shack is trying to present a picture of God that the author William Young actually believes is going to be more endearing and more helpful he argues that the pictures of, the, of God that people have of a judge, of righteous, of, of holy and judging is one of the reasons why people don't like coming to church. And, and above all else, we really want people to come to church, don't we? And, 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 and can't we repackage God in a way where he's, um, I don't know, easier to digest, more palatable? Um, that's, that's kind of his motivation. Recently, another podcast comment, um, we came across a line, Michael Gunger, you may know who he is, he's a Christian artist. He recently came out with a statement that he wished other Christian artists would quit writing songs that um, lifted up or celebrated um, a father having to be appeased by murdering his son. Like, why do we still talk about that so much? I want to see other pictures, more beautiful pictures. Like, look at all the violence in the world. And if we think about the cross and we think about what happened on the cross, um, doesn't that just kind of feed the violence? I, I really think what we need to do is quit talking about that. That's what Gunger said. So we got into the, the, the studio. We, we did a podcast recently entitled Consider This, and the thought we were walking through was, is God a divine child abuser? Now, that statement may, may bother you and may even confuse you a little bit. And I want you to realize that when we use that statement, we're actually kind of using words that they like to use, which is that, is God a divine child abuser, meaning Jesus Christ? And did God send Jesus to die? And is that fact abuse? They're, they're trying to use language to, um, to bring out maybe some of our modern sensitivities. And I get where they're coming from. I know what they're actually trying to do. My question is, number one, is it real? And then number two, I like to even ask this one, like, is your new version of God actually, like, helpful in our greatest moments of need? Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 18. This is how the text says it. And now when all the people saw the thunder, so this is God coming down on the mountain. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood, up, they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses then said to the people, and boy, I, I just, I've used this verse so many times, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him... No, no notice that. Let's just stop and think about that. Don't be afraid... Because God has come down to reveal himself in his fullness to, like, scare you. Wait, you don't want to be afraid, so, so God came down to scare me so I wouldn't be afraid? Think about that. That's kind of what Moses is saying. He's basically saying God has come down to test you so that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near. And, and I want you to think about this. This is kind of where I, where I came back to this text was the consuming fire idea that we see at the end of chapter 12, but also the mediator idea that we actually see in the text. Jesus being described in, in Hebrews 12 as a greater mediator of a covenant, right? So Moses, is kind of, as, he's, as, he's, as he's comparing, the, the Hebrew writer is comparing these two covenants, one which is movable, the Old Testament one, one which is shakable, the Old Testament one. By the way, by God's design, movable and shakable. 
what we actually have is a greater one that is immovable and unshakable by a greater mediator. And you can imagine Jewish people going, wait a second, wait a second, like greater than Moses? Yeah. Um, like Jesus really is. He's far, yeah, but did God ever come down and speak to Jesus like he did to Moses? <laughs> and the answer is no. Um, it was actually better. Like God's communication with Jesus is at a fundamentally different way, different path, different essence than how he communicated to Moses. What we have in Christ is, is far better and far greater. And that's kind of what's going on in, in Hebrews chapter 12. Is it's that picture, it's that, it's that intent that is going on. And, and, and here is what the, the Hebrew writer is trying to say. So last week when we were discussing this issue of endurance, we basically said we need to weigh it all out so that we can understand what endurance is and, and we, can, we, can, we can endure in a better way. But let me, let me ask you this. Um, is there any other reason why we should endure? And the end of the chapter literally says, yeah, because two things. The first one is, if you look at our text, like what we have is actually better. It's what, it's what we have is better. Um, it, it points to, and, and sometimes the New Testament writers do this, they're, they're pointing to um, the incredible failure of the law, of Moses, of the Old Testament scheme, to actually accomplish what God wanted, okay? Now, honestly, one of the things that we need to realize is that's complicated because when we go back and we read the Bible, the Old Testament, what we actually see, read Psalm 119, it doesn't seem to describe it in the same way. It describes the law as wonderful. It doesn't describe it as like movable. No, it describes it as solid. And I'll tell you, it's, it's kind of like this. The psalmists, as they write about the law, look around and go, man, is there anything that we have that is more stable than the law? Is there anything that is more unshakable than the law? And they looked around and they said, no, there's nothing. There is nothing like the Word of God. There is nothing more, more sustainable. There is nothing more trusting. There is nothing at all greater than the Word of God. And great is it, and great is it, and I need to know it, and I need to live it. And I, I think that's a great position to have. If I lived back then, <laughs> if I lived before Jesus Christ came, then I'm sure that would be my position too. My, my question isn't, why does the Old Testament speak so well of the law and then the New Testament begin to question some things about it, begin to, to talk about it in a, in a different way? Is, has something changed? And the answer is yes. Like something has changed. And, and, and in essence, I don't know if you picked this up when I said it, but I, I picked it up as I was thinking about it. What is greater than the Word? What is greater than the Word of God? You know where I'm going with this? So John chapter 1 says, And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so John is trying to help his audience see the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. So we can talk about the Word of God, and in this instance, small w, even though it's the law, capital L. But what we actually have in Jesus Christ is not word small w, but word big w. It is fundamentally different. It's actually, it's the difference between Hamlet and Shakespeare. It's the, it's, there's a big difference between Hamlet and Shakespeare. Hamlet is a, a, a wonderful piece. I really did enjoy it, although Macbeth or um, Taming of the Shrew may be kind of like one of my favorite ones, or Merchant in Venice. That's another one I really, really liked. Um, but I, I keep 
talking about more and more works that Shakespeare had, and I began to realize, wow, if, if all you like about Shakespeare is Hamlet, you really fail to see the full picture of who Shakespeare is. If, if all that you think about for God is the law, then you really don't know like the fullness of who He is. By the way, there are many Christians that fall unknowingly because they're really not thinking through. Some of the very same problems that William Lung and William Young and Michael Gunger have in regards to Jesus Christ and wanting a different picture of God and wanting a different picture, it's because they don't like one, one, one thing he wrote and then they believe, I, I can jettison that, I can let go of that instead of realizing, and this is my appeal to the, to the William Youngs or to the Michael Gungers or, or, or probably more realistically to our congregation, to you, to me, to my children, to whoever, um, recognize the reality of the fullness of who God is as described in Scripture. One, one, of, my, one of my joys in preaching and teaching is to proclaim the full counsel of who God is. And maybe one of the reasons why you may hear me and wonder, okay, why does Jim emphasize this so much? The, the harder things of God. And to be honest with you, it's a, it's a bit... I don't want to pretend everything I do is from a spirit's conviction. I wish it was. That'd be good, wouldn't it? But what if, um, because I really do believe it's like the spirit leading me to address those issues and those things that no one else seems to want to address. Um, my youngest son now, uh, Sergio, said to me after last Sunday's sermon, he said, where did you learn to preach like that? And I was curious to know what the like that meant. And so I asked him, what do you mean like that? Like, what are you describing? Because I didn't think what he was asking was, why did you choose expository over topical? Or why did you choose more of a, um, uh, a deductive than an inductive? And why don't you... Pre He's not asking any of those questions. He doesn't even know what those questions are. What he said was, you know, like you just say things like they are and you're really not worried so much like whether or not somebody has a hard time with that. And, um, you know, that's kind of how he hears it. And I, I know I could even come across like that, although I don't think people understand how often I really am genuinely concerned that I'm not misunderstood. And I'm very aware that I'm speaking on, um, from, from uh, Matthew 24, I'm describing what, how Matthew 24 is describing God. And if I'm trying to teach Matthew 24 and then I spend all my time kind of talking about all the other aspects than Matthew 24, then I'm not doing justice to Matthew 24. And so, by the way, um, one of the reasons why I was able to enjoy the shack is because God is more loving than I can explain. And God is more gracious than I know. I, I believe that there are things that God has been gracious towards that I was not. And by the way, I was wrong and He was right. I also think there are things that have happened in history, maybe in my own life, where God is more serious about and more strict about and more upset about, more angry at than I am. Does, does God have that? Permission? Does God have that prerogative? I would argue He does. And so when I'm beginning to look at this and what, what I do and what the Hebrew writer is doing is say, hey, I, I want to give you a picture of God. So he said last week, like I want to give you a picture of God so that as you weigh things out, um, you're able to kind of look at Jesus Christ specifically and His example of looking into the future as to what He is going to receive and enduring for now. But in our text, 
sounds a little bit today, a little bit more like the, 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 the Exodus text. And so I want you to just, I want to read through some of these verses and for us to just get a, a, a sense of what the Hebrew writer is saying. And if I can say this now, and I know what you're saying, he's just being a little more brave because he's on film, maybe. But as you begin to describe this, he is, is really looking at a picture of God where he's not trying to endear you. He is trying to be straight up honest that this is who God is. Remember our question number one, is it real or is it true? Notice what he says in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. That's the reference back to the Exodus 20 material. And what he's saying is, is like, you're in front of the same God. I mean, this is a great text. I need to tell Michael Gunger this. I know that we may have, as a culture, grown beyond the idea of a violent and angry God who needs to be appeased by his son. I, I know that as a culture, we really think we've outgrown him. I just want to ask you, but is that still him? Because that, that actually matters. <laughs> that actually matters a lot. And what he is saying here is, uh, the Hebrew writer, speaking from the indicative, like this is who God is. He goes on to say, look at verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. Like, meaning this, like they literally could not stand in His presence. They could not, it's not that they couldn't measure up to the law. He's talking at a much deeper level. He's not saying they had some failures. He is saying the fullness of God in their presence was so big and so great, they had no ability to withstand it. They were in serious trouble. And then he's going to say, and you're going to be in front of the same God. He then goes in to talk about, and this is where it gets beautiful, actually. And then the same way that the Old Testament writers, the psalmist, Psalm 119, oh, the law is great, and the law is perfect, and the law is wonderful, and the law is beautiful. Paul, the law is, you know, temporary. And the, all the, law, the law is always holy, and the law is always good. We have something better now. We have a, a covenant that is far much greater. Again, he is, he is looking at the law through the lens of Jesus and saying, wow, compared to Jesus, God himself, that's why he has to be, in essence, God, to cast a long shadow upon the law. The only one that could do that is God. He did that in, I'd say this, he did that in Exodus and he's doing that in Hebrews. God is always casting a shadow, a greater shadow upon his law. Reality. God is greater than that and therefore endure. Um, I, I really think what's missing, and I, I'm beginning to even see more and more as I get older why it's missing, we are so afraid that certain pictures of God may put people off that we domesticate Him, um, that we kind of put a leash on Him, um, that we make Him so appear to be so tame. It's, it's kind of like the guy that plays with the hippo, thinking, oh, he, he seems rather tame. And you grow up with the hippo, and you're hanging out with the hippo, and you love the hippo. And there's a great hippo story, actually. You can pick it up on YouTube about this guy that took a hippo from, from the time that he was little. And they kept saying, hey, he's a dangerous animal. No, he's not. And plays with the hippo. And at the very end of this documentary, and this guy just refused to believe this hippo could ever hurt him. At the end of the documentary, it says, two weeks after filming this video, so-and-so, I can't remember his name, was killed by the hippo. And that's what we do, isn't it? Like, don't we want God to be this tameable thing? Now, my question is, like, two weeks later after the filming of this video, 
what if we meet God and He's not? Like, is the God, here's the question, is the God you are presenting to your children? Is the God you are presenting to your spouse? Is the God you are testifying to your neighbors the true God? And, and hear me, I'm always fine with all of us, even collectively, not perfectly describing who God is, but tell me that you're not leaving huge gaps. You know, it really is actually rather easy for me. I, I think I could even get our church to grow if I began to talk about God. Now, you'd probably leave because you're good people, but I really could get this church to grow. Steve would leave, I guarantee you that. And Brian would leave and Paul would leave. Yeah, everyone on staff would leave. But, uh, but I could stick around. I'd have to find a new um, uh, office. I had to find new elders, to be honest with you. But I could probably get this church to grow if I began to talk about your best life now. And I could probably talk about love wins. And I could talk about all these different things. I could talk about God is like um, um, this, this wonderful woman who knows how to bake cookies. I mean, man, that'll bring an audience. I really think it would. It just doesn't prepare them on that day. So think about it. What the Hebrew writer is saying is not, hey, how can we grow our church? It's how can we grow up so that when we meet Him, we deal with the fullness of who He is? That's the question. Now, now here's, the, here's the beauty of it. As I, as I begin to wrap this up, here's the beauty of this. Is that as the Hebrew writer is describing this God, it's not just, and He's just consuming fire and you better be good and He's going to kill you. Like he's just consuming fire, and if you're not afraid, I mean, like, totally afraid all the time, you're in serious trouble. Now, see what, and again, give me some permission to use them more as caricatures than real humans, but, because uh, I just don't know them well enough, but because I don't know them at all. William Young and Michael Gunger, they believe that a, a softer, more palatable version of God really would help people. Like, it really would coincide, and I would say two things. Number one, it doesn't help them on that day. It doesn't help them because there's a lot of people that are looking forward to the day where they can meet this God who's going to bake totally cool cookies and really kind of gets that they did the best that they could. Like they never really needed the cookie maker. Um, they never really needed like much about him. They never lived for him. But that's okay because he's a cookie maker, right? Kind of like a, a softer version of the cookie monster. And so that's their view of him. Now, when they meet him, are they in trouble? I mean, like you and I can say whatever we want about God, but if it doesn't match up to this? See, the Hebrew writer says, essentially, you are about to meet a consuming fire. Like, therefore, endure. Like, you are about to, to, to meet the one who is, like, more holy and righteous and loving and gracious and kind and merciful than you could ever, but he's holy and righteous. Actually, the greatest characteristics of God, the only one that is actually used, love, 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 nope. Mercy, 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 nope. Gracious, 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 nope. You know what it is? Holy, holy, holy. Completely other. Completely set different. Completely of all sense different. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And it is in His holiness that we get a better understanding of what His grace, what grace looks like. It is in His holiness that we understand what love truly looks like. Holiness, meaning this other separateness, not just sinlessness. That's one aspect, by the way, of His character and of His nature. He's like just completely other. And I want to ask you this question. Are you prepared to meet Him? And there really is a sense for me to tell my kid, hey, listen, play with the oven all you want. Play with the stove all you want. It can't hurt you. 
It really can't hurt you because it loves you. Um, actually, it can hurt you. Like that fire in the fireplace, like should you decide to play with that and then that comes out onto the, you know, onto the carpet and up the drapes and then on the, like that can actually kill you. And it would be a disservice for me to teach my little children to play with fire irresponsibly. And I want you to think about that. But final thought. Take a back look through, or look back through, like what he says earlier about chapter 12. I know he ends with that God is a consuming fire, but before that, in this picture of endurance, he describes this Jesus who is this incredible mediator of a kingdom and a covenant that is so much greater than what they had in the past. So look at what he says in verse 22, and I want to end with this. Look at this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the heavenly Jerusalem, meaning you've gone far bigger than Mount Sinai. They're standing around behind a fence going, make them go away, Moses, because we can't handle them. And the Hebrew writer says, yeah, like we went past the fence. And not only that, like we didn't, we're not even near Mount Sinai. We're on Mount Zion. We're in the New Jerusalem. We're, we're like right in the presence of God. Like, isn't that the scariest place? Isn't that the most dangerous place? Yes and no. Look at what he says. And to innumerable angels in festive gathering, holy beings, by the way, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, like just boom, boom, boom and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then here's the line. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. <laughs> like what he's saying is, is that listen, yes. Like I'm not telling you to not be afraid. I'm telling you to be totally afraid. God does not dial back any aspect of him. When we meet him in judgment, he is not dialing it back so that we can handle him. You know what he's doing? Through Christ and through his blood, he is actually strengthening and enabling us to be in his presence. See, what, what I would critique the youngs and the gungers of is diluting God to make it more easy for us to deal with him. Problem is, it doesn't correspond with reality. And by the way, it doesn't help me right now. I don't need a God that gets me so much he understands what it's like to be prideful or lustful or greedy or envious. Now, I can do that on my own. Thank you very much. I need someone that has overcome that. I need someone that has looked the devil in the eye and said, I will not give in to you in any way for any reason. For I know who God is and I am him and I am willing to trust him to the very end. That's what I need. I think if you think about it, and I know it's not, it's not quite as easy as this, that if you just have a thought about Jesus, you'll never be anxious again. But I'm telling you, what helps in your anxiety is not a Jesus who totally gets you and that's fine. No, I, I need to, just like Peter, when I step out of the boat, of the, of the problems, when I step out into the storm, I need to be more healthily, reverently afraid of the one who's about to calm the storm than the one who made it. Or then, maybe better yet, no, I mean what I mean by that is by the storm itself. Let me say that again. So when I step out into it, I need to be more afraid of the one who can calm the storm than the storm itself. 
and, and honestly, I want to be really careful with this because I know, man, everybody I know has got like some kind of anxiety issue now. And by the way, I don't quite have the anxiety piece, but I have my own issues. Um, I get it. And I, I, I have thought for so long that what people need to hear is just that, yeah, it'll be okay. Like, it'll be okay. And I know you're sad and I'm sad too. And I know you're scared and I'm scared too. Like, maybe it's time for us, like the Hebrew writer, to begin to talk about a God that is big and powerful and strong. Like, instead of turning God into a cookie maker, maybe we, what, what we need to do is speak the truth about Him. That, that, like, really good cookies isn't what you need. You, you need a God and a, a creator and a sustainer that is completely holy and righteous and fearful. Like, we should be afraid of Him. And if it wasn't for His grace and His mercy and His kindness, if it wasn't for what He did through Jesus Christ, man, you should do nothing but be afraid. But because you know who Jesus Christ is, peace to you. What the Hebrew writer is saying is, is that like, you can endure. Now, by the way, if you don't, you're in serious trouble because He's a consuming fire. But since He has overcome, and since He has overcome for you, that fire is not something to be afraid of as much as it is something to be enjoyed. <laughs> I like a good fire. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time and for, for this class. And uh, Father, I do wish I could be there. Um, and through the use of technology, I guess I am. I'm grateful for um, just the day in which I live. Uh, Father, more than that, I pray that we would not succumb to modern convention, and I really am not as worried about um, technology as I am um, an egotistical, prideful approach to the Scriptures where somehow my understanding of you is better than the reality of you. So God, I pray that through your Scriptures you would teach us the truth, and that more than that, Father, that by your Spirit and by the witness and example of your Son, that we would be able to know and follow the truth which is Jesus. Thank you for His greatness. And thank you for the fact that you will and never change and that you are enough to calm our fears because we know what it's like to know how to fear you. What a wonderful text today. I give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys and uh, probably see you in a couple of days. God bless. I will be actually teaching tomorrow night at WNS, so maybe I'll see some of you then.